Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat. And as you grab a seat, let me tell you about a Saturday in the life of Jesus. Um, Jesus, early on in his ministry, he was, uh, he was in a town, a small fishing village off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. The name of the town was Capernaum. And uh, it was the Sabbath, it was a Saturday, people were meeting in synagogue, and Jesus was the teacher in the synagogue this day, and something in the midst of his message, something unique happened that day in the synagogue in Capernaum. There was a guy in the, in the congregation who started speaking back to Jesus. And I'm sure as this guy started speaking back to Jesus, the rest of the congregation very quickly knew this wasn't a normal interaction for their small fishing village synagogue on a Sabbath day. This guy was possessed with a demon. And right there in this Capernaum synagogue, Jesus of Nazareth, he cast this demon out. And uh, the service ends and everyone goes home. Now, um, when the people of Capernaum went home that day, and, people, and someone said, hey, I was, I was church. Wait, I mean, what do you think they said? I mean, this guy was teaching, and he was teaching in a way we never heard a guy teach like this. And then like halfway through the service, he casts out this demon. In a place like Capernaum, word would have spread of something like this happening so fast. But the service ends, Jesus goes to uh, Peter's house. And at Peter's house is his mother-in-law, and his mother-in-law is ill. Jesus walks up next to the bed of Peter's ill mother-in-law, and he heals her right there on the spot. Now what you have in a typical Sabbath day of a small fishing village off the Sea of Galilee, you have someone who has cast out a demon, you have someone who has completely healed someone who was ill, and word starts spreading. Word starts spreading so much that it tells us that people from Capernaum and around, they start bringing to Peter's front lawn the sick and the demon-possessed. Peter's front yard has just turned into an emergency room. And you can see it there, and, and, and um, it says as sundown was beginning, Jesus has already had a long day of ministry, as sundown is setting in, he begins healing these people. He begins healing those who are ill. He begins casting out demons. This goes on well into the night until literally they have to flip the sign on the window from open to closed so that people can sleep. Jesus needs sleep, his disciples need sleep, the people that are left remaining who are still there, who are hoping a loved one could be healed, who are hoping a loved one could have a demon cast out, they need to get some rest. But the intention is, the next morning, or the disciples thought the intention was, the next morning, the sign will go from closed to open, and the emergency room will open back up. But we're told what happens that next morning. Jesus, he gets up, before anyone else in the house, and he kind of tiptoes around the sleeping bodies in the living room, and he makes his way, and, and does, anyone know, you know, does anyone know where he went? He goes to a quiet place to pray. Sometime later, the disciples wake up, and I just imagine them sprawled out on Peter's living room floor, and they wake up, and they rub the sleep from their eyes, and they look out the front window, and I mean, the place is still blanketed in people in need of Jesus' ministry, and they say, okay, Jesus, let's get to it. Look at all the people that need healing. Look at all the demons that need to be cast out. Let's go, Jesus, let's go. Jesus. Hey, where's Jesus? 
And the frantic search begins as they begin to look around the house and near that house. And and finally, they come across Jesus in this quiet place praying. And they say, what are you doing? Did you see that front lawn? Do you see the people in need of your healing, in need of your casting out? And they say it like this. They said, everybody is looking for you. And then what what Jesus says next to them in reply is something none of us would have had the guts to say. In fact, if we didn't know that Jesus said this, we probably would have said, whoever said that, they're just downright wrong. How could, he, how could he say this? With so many people in need back on that lawn, look at what Jesus says to his disciples when they finally find him. Mark 1. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. What? Can you see his disciples who, who, who awkwardly came to the front door and they're like, Haha, hold on, um, it'll just be a moment. The doctor's not in the building right now. They go out and they find him and they find Jesus. They're peaceful in prayer and he simply looks back to them and he says, okay, okay, guys, um, we're moving on. Ne- next town. What do we tell the people? There's still still all kinds of people who need to be healed, who need demons cast out. Jesus, Jesus just made a massive priority statement here. He just made a massive ministry priority statement here. See, in the life of Jesus, his healing ministry, his casting out of demons ministry, it all flowed from the ultimate reason he came to preach this message of a kingdom he was seeking to build. The healing, the casting of demons, it was to substantiate the preaching ministry, but Jesus made a priority statement here. Now I bring up this story because um, we, if you're new with us, we're walking verse by verse through the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, get to Acts chapter 6 this morning. If you need a Bible under a seat nearby, you can find a Bible, Acts chapter 6. And we're making our way verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through this book. And the book of Acts, if you're newer to the Bible, the book of Acts is basically the account of what happened with the followers of Jesus after Jesus um, was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 6, we're going to come across um, what I think is one of the most pivotal administrative leadership decisions the apostles made in the early days of the church. And now I know what you're thinking. Yay! A message on apostolic administrative leadership decisions. This passage today in Acts chapter 6, just seven verses, kind of side note, in our culture today, we go to church, we go sit at lunch after church, and we often ask this question, what did you get out of the message today? And the heart of that question is great. But what we're usually always looking for is some like profound personal application that just like rocked our heart. Let me just tell you up front, I think today's application is way more corporate in nature than it is personal in nature. 
And you're like, well, what's it have to do with me? Mass, massive. If we miss the lesson the apostles are teaching in this passage right here, it could set the course of this body of Jesus followers on a dangerous trajectory in such a way that it will have everything to do with our personal walk with Jesus. We have to understand what happens in these seven verses and why this is one of the most pivotal administrative leadership decisions the apostles made, I believe, in the early days of the church. So let me give you the point of the message straight out this morning, and let me, let, then let me tell us where we're going. Point of the message, when the ministry of prayer and the word are prioritized, the gospel flourishes. When the ministry of prayer and the word are prioritized, the gospel flourishes. Now, I even heard it. Some of you are like, amen. Word and prayer, word and prayer, word and prayer. And listen, like, like preacher guy, I'm like, amen. Word and prayer. But then, but then, there's others of us in the room, um, like millennials, we're kind of like this. I can bash you because I am one, okay? We're like, we're cause-driven, you know? Yeah, 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 word and prayer. But what about like, social justice and what about like mercy ministry and what about the needs in the world and the evils of the world that have to be addressed the needs that have to be met and and all of God's people should be saying amen it is not an either or it's a both and but here's something we're going to see in this passage today how do the apostles not deviate from their primary calling of the word and prayer and yet at the same time satisfactorily, awesomely meet the needs that have arisen in the church. That's what we got to be about. How do we not lose the foundation of prayer in the word while doing the other ministry God has called us to? And so we're going to have a three-part conversation today. Part one, let's call it this, the season. We're going to see that the church is in a unique season here that is leading to um, um, a complaint arising leading to a bit of murmuring happening, uh, a murmuring that's going to draw attention to a need that has to be addressed in the church. Uh, part two of the conversation today is we're gonna, the solution. What are the apostles going to do about this, and how does their solution allow them to prioritize the ministry Jesus has called them to while meeting the ministry needs that arise in the church? And then part three is this. What's the outcome? How does God use this? How does the church continue to flourish because of the Spirit leading the apostles in this decision. Let's pray and ask God's help and let's study it. God, help us now. Lord, the truth of your word is spiritually discerned. So God, what we need right now is not a charismatic speaker. We don't need rhetorical ability. We don't need a deep intellectual ability of the hearer. We need your Spirit to illuminate your word. We need your spirit to illuminate your word in such a way that we can see it, that we can understand it, and that we know how to apply it. Only you in the power of your spirit can do that in our heart. And so God, right now, I beg you, would you get any, any words that come out of my mouth that would distract from that illumination? Lord, guard my mouth. Lord, I pray for any distractions in the minds or the hearts of the hearers right now, Lord. Get them out of there so you can illuminate your word. You have a word for us from these seven verses. We don't want to miss it. 
And God, I just pray, would your spirit blanket this place in power right now? Would it consume our minds and our hearts so, Lord, we can hear what you want to say? And I pray these now in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have the first part of this conversation. What, what season is the church in here? Look at Acts 6, verse 1. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were, what's the next word? They're increasing. When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, stop there. And the first thing we got to understand about the season the church is in here is that the, the church is in a season of growth. Uh, the church is growing in number. The Spirit of God is doing a, an amazing work in their midst here. People are coming to know Jesus and more and more disciples are being added here. This season of growth is coming with some growing pains. Seasons of growth bring growing pains. And one of the growing pains was this uh, complaint arises. That word complaint is a complaint in the form of murmuring. A murmuring begins to happen amidst the church here. Now, this is really important to remember. Sometimes when we study the book of Acts, we're just like, this is perfect church. This is the perfect people following the perfect Savior. That's not what the story of the book of Acts is. The book of Acts has murmuring arise in it because they're people. And a murmuring begins, and what's at the heart of this complaint or this murmuring? It's coming from one group of people within the Jesus-following community, and they're called the Hellenists. These were um, Grecian Jews. These were Jesus followers that come kind of from a Greek, the, the, uh, um, whatever that word is, Greek-speaking Jews at the time who are following Jesus. These are who the Hellenists are. They're, they bring a complaint that as they're watching the widows be cared for, this daily distribution of food to provide for the needs of the widows, they're like, hey, it seems like the Jesus followers who come from a Hebrew descent, uh, the Jews of the Jews, their widows are being cared for better than our widows are, and this complaint arises in the midst of this body in a season of growing pains. And I just want to stop here. I want to make our first point for us. Growing pain seasons can distract from the priority of prayer in the Word. Now, point one is going to have greater context to it as the passage continues to unfold before us. But we need to understand something. Growing pain seasons can distract from the priority of prayer in the Word. How does this happen? Harvest Indy South, listen closely. Because we as a church are walking into a very busy season. How does this happen? Um, during seasons of growth... Things can be unintentionally overlooked. That's what I think you have here in Acts chapter 6. A good, a good desire by the Hellenists to see their widows cared for, I think some things were unintentionally overlooked. What then happens is as things are overlooked, people go, hey, hey, why are we not, why are we not doing that better? And why are we not addressing this? And what's up with that? And emotion begins to get involved and people get upset. People get angry. People start to point fingers. This is what, I, again, I think you have with the Hellenists. They have a good desire, their widows cared for, that they've communicated in a bad way, complaining in the form of murmuring. They have a right desire communicated in a wrong way. 
And how often are we guilty of that? So much of the things we complain about or murmur about or whatever, they're good things. They're right things. We just let emotion get involved and we start, we start communicating them in a way that is just so wrong and so not of God. Now, let me just call a timeout right here and say this. Um, I'm not preaching this message because this is your pastor's passive-aggressive way of putting down any murmurings that are going on in the church, okay? Like, this is what I love about why we preach verse by verse through the book of the Bible. Why are we preaching this passage? Because that's where we are in the book. And there's lessons for us to learn. But what you have here is in this growing season, some complaints have arisen. And this is just important for us in the season we're going into. How do we, get not, how do we not get off point with all that we're going to be doing of planting churches and other communities and building a facility and all of these other things? Now, this is the season, part two of the conversation. What are the apostles going to do about this? How are they going to address this? And this is a massive learning point for us right here. Go to verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. What do they do here? They call church meeting. Hey, church meeting. Let's go. We need to meet. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples, and they said, now stop. Don't don't read. Don't read ahead. Don't read ahead. They're going to start to address this issue now. And, and why I started with the story of Jesus on the shores of Galilee is because when the disciples walked up to Jesus that day, I can imagine none of them had in their mind that Jesus was going to say, you know what we need to do? Next town. As the, as the apostles, 11 of them remaining from that incident with Jesus, as they are going to address this issue, the first words they are going to speak are not the words we would have thought would have come out of their mouth here. Look what they say here. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, if I was the apostle's lawyer, consultant, legal counsel in this, that's when I would have calmly come from the back and whispered in their ears, gentlemen, that was probably not the best way we could have said that right there. Why don't we rehuddle and come up with something a bit more politically correct? Very direct statement made by the apostles here. And now it's really important that we don't miss the apostles' intention in the midst of this direct statement. Do the apostles lack love for the widows here? The answer I think we're going to see as the passage unfolds is no. Okay, then are the apostles making, are the apostles saying, you know what? We're above that kind of serving. We don't do that. Again, I think we're going to see the apostles' servant's heart come out in great ways. Are the apostles saying, oh, I know that's kind of important, but what we're doing is really important. I don't think that's the heart either. I don't think the apostles right here are ultimately making a statement on ministry importance. I think they're making a statement on ministry calling. I think they're saying, hey, hey remember, all the disciples are gathered. It's a church meeting. And I think they're saying, hey, do you all remember... Like, Jesus 
left us with this commission that he's going to fill us with power from on high and we we're going to be his witnesses here, near, and far. And he has, he's just called us. I don't know why. Apostles speaking, I don't know why. But we have been commissioned and called to devote our lives to the preaching of this kingdom message and to the prayer that's going to f- infuse this message with power. And so you're like, oh, you don't, what about, the, what about the need of the widows then? You don't care about that, apostles? You're just going to wash your hands of that? No, look at what they do here. It's beautiful. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will, what's the word say? But we will devote ourselves to prayer, and to the ministry of the word. What they do is they say, hey, this is just a matter of calling. As we think about the way we can best serve in the building up of this church that God is building, God has called us. Jesus has left us with a specific commission. We got to devote, the word they use is devote ourselves. You know what that word, alternate meaning of that word is? To persist obstinately in. They're like, we cannot deviate from this calling. He's called us to preach. He's called us to pray. We can't deviate from that. But then they go, but here's what, here's what we need to do. We need to appoint seven men. And these aren't like back of the pack, you know, bottom of the, 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 the class list guys. These are men that says, what? Good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And he goes, these seven men are going to carry the torch to make sure that the needs of the widows, Hellenist Hebrew, are met satisfactorily, are met in a way that honors God because we know God's heartbeat for the widow and the orphan. And what they do is they appoint these seven men. Now, I think this is a beautifully humble approach by the apostles. They don't say, okay, there's a need. We have to solve it. We have to be the guys to do it. They say, no, 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 no. We know what Jesus has called us to. Let's appoint seven to serve in this way. Now, I want to pull out something here of the serving nature of this so we know that this isn't the apostles going, we're above serving like that. Look at, go back to verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, um, uh, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the, what's that word? To the ministry of the word. Now go back up to verse two. Um, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word um, of God to, what's the word right before tables? To serve. Okay, uh, the root Greek word here for both of these words, uh, ministry and to serve, is this word diakonia. What I want us to see is the apostles are going, hey, listen, God has called some people to be serving the food here, to be diakoniing the food here. And God has called some of us to be serving the word here, to diakonia the word here. We need to understand this about the way, what God is doing and the way God is working. God has called all of his people to ministry. Like, we are all called to full-time ministry. I, I, I always run into people, and, um, and I know we all know what this means, and it's well-intentioned, but they're like, hey, hey, he's called to ministry, and I, and I know what that means, but listen, aren't we all called to ministry? God has called all of his people to ministry. Now, here's what we need to know. 
God has called different people to different ministries. And when we all function in this way for the building up of the body, you have the 12 who are entrusted to serve, to diakonia the word and prayer, to lead in that. You have the seven who are to serve in the waiting on of tables of the serving of food for the widows. And the 12 plus the seven equals the serving of one church that's what being built up into the head that is Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So let me give you the second point here. Ministry decisions should be made around the priority of prayer and the word. Now, again, some of you won't like that statement. What do we mean ministry decisions should be made around the priority of prayer and the word or from the priority of prayer and the word? Here's why. Um, Shouldn't we be about alleviating evils around the world? Shouldn't we be about feeding the hungry and giving clean water to the thirsty? And shouldn't we be about clothing the naked and visiting those in prison, of serving the orphan and the widow? Shouldn't we be about all of this as the church of Jesus Christ? Yes. But all of that ministry should flow from a deep commitment and a foundation of prayer and the Word of God. When we get too unbalanced on one side or the other, when we're too unbalanced over here, and it becomes all about the social gospel, we just become philanthropists who don't differentiate ourselves whatsoever, that we're philanthropists, yes, who carry a heart-transforming message of the gospel of Jesus who, yes, give a cup of cold water with our hands and then speak a message of heart transformation. But if we get too unbalanced over here, it's like, no, not about serving anything. Just get up. You know what all we need to do is get up and preach the word. We're too unbalanced in this way, and this is what I think the apostles do here. This is why I think it's one of the most beautifully important administrative leadership decisions in the early days of the church. They go, we cannot deviate, we cannot get distracted, we cannot detract from the primary calling God has given us of preaching and prayer. And at the same time, we need to put something in place. We need to make an administrative decision to make sure we are doing mercy ministry and caring for the widows well. Beautiful. And look at, what's, how's the church meeting go? What do the people think of this? Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, not the Lion King one, the other one, and, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them, and they commissioned them to this serving Role. Now, this, this passage right here is the passage attributed to the formation of the role within the church of deacons. And our, our elders are beginning a months-long process right now of going before the Lord and asking the Lord to raise to the surface uh, people who will serve in the role of deacons in this church. Who, will, who as serving needs arise here, that, that there will be people kind of especially commissioned to lead the way as servants 
to help meet those needs, and this is what you see here. Now, if the season has been described, the solution that the apostles laid out has been unpacked, now let's see how does this turn out for the good of the church. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Yes, when? And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now you try it. Yes. When? And then it's so much, God is so at work in this season that Luke even notes this, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And all together, yes. When? Luke puts verse 7 here so intentionally. He unpacks, the, the, this, ver, the, this, this, this part of Acts starts with kind of the family, uh, I won't say divided, that's maybe too strong, some discord in the family. The, verse 6 ends with the church meeting and all of them going, this is good, this is of the Lord, here's the men we think should be in this, they lay hands on them, and now Luke is going, look at the outcome of this, look at how God has used this, the word of God is spreading, more and more are coming to you know Jesus, and even the Jewish priests are bowing the knee to Jesus as Lord. Yes and when. Third point, the kingdom of Christ advances when the priority of prayer and the word remain central. Had the disciples, had the apostles at this point gone, okay, I know we're called to preach the word, I know we're called to lead the way and witnessing to this gospel message, but we need to set that aside right now because a complaint has arisen in the family and it's a good one and it needs to be addressed and we need to focus our time and energy on this. If they would have got deviated off the primary calling, the word can't advance. They knew what they were called to do. And they said, we have to appoint those God is calling to that so that we can continue to do what God has called us to this. Now, the point. When the ministry of prayer and the word are prioritized, the gospel flourishes. Why does the gospel flourish? Because the gospel is a message the gospel is a message the apostles were leading the way and carrying. All of the ministry that we do and we should do to alleviate evils and to meet needs around the world, to provide clean water, to love on our neighbors, to, to provide for the widow and the orphan, all of that flows from a deep commitment from, for, to the prayer and to the word because the gospel is a message. The apostles understood they had to get this message of a kingdom Jesus wanted established in every heart. They had to not deviate. They had to remain persistently obstinate in that calling to get this message out there. And if you're here today and you're like, what, is, what are you talking about like, if you're here today and you're new to church, you probably experience that a lot when you go to church. What are these people talking about? This guy keeps talking about a message, and there's that gospel word. What is this? What do you mean the gospel flourishes? There is a message. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and don't tune, don't tune me out, please, if you've grown up in church and you've heard sermons end like this hundreds of times, 
But if, if your life has never been deeply transformed by Jesus, you probably don't know Jesus. What is this message? The message starts like this, that every single one of us sitting in here today, the Bible says it like this, we've sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. We've all not met God's standard. We have all fallen short of that. And it applies to every single one of us sitting in this room. All of us. And then the news gets worse that because all of us have sinned, God calls it, we're separated from God. We are, we're relationally separated from God. God is holy and is perfect and he cannot have sin in his presence. He can't. And that there's a penalty for our sin and that penalty is separation from God. The penalty is death. It's eternal separation from God forever. But then Jesus came, God in flesh. And we say it around here like this a lot. He was born where the animals slept. Grew up in a carpenter's home. As his ministry began, um, There'd be people who say, hey, we want to come follow you. And he'd say, great, don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. He lived like a homeless man. And then he died a criminal's death. And you got to hear, Jesus didn't die a criminal's death like I was taught in my undergrad because he was this radical revolutionary who was just, um, who was just uh, trying to start an uprising against the established regime. Jesus died a criminal's death to bear the sin of the world on his shoulders. He was laid in a tomb. And then three days later, he rose. And that resurrection has transformed history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth means we can have a resurrection too. But it doesn't apply to you just because you grew up in a Christian home. And it doesn't apply to you because you live in a Christianized area. It doesn't apply to you just because you know Sunday school verses and you know Jesus loves me, this I know. It only applies to you when you respond to this message in faith. The Bible uses this word, when you believe. You're like, I'm fine, I'm good, I believe, God exists. Biblical belief is literally, I'm jumping all in. <laughs> this is corny, but it might work. I'm doing a trust fall on Jesus. I'm realize, I realize I have nothing else. I have nothing else to trust fall on. I've tried way too long to be as good as person as I can possibly be, and God it just keeps exposing that my heart is just nasty and ugly. Because it is. And mine is too. Biblical belief is the day you finally say, Jesus, I got nothing else. I'm wretched. Will you come deliver me? You want to know something? He will. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
I'm like, okay, how do I call? Listen, listen, there's no formulaic prayer. You call in the very personality, the way God has wired you, the way you would call. Say, Jesus, I see, I need you. I need, I'm hopeless without you. My sin has separated me from you. I need you. Will you come save me? And he will. The apostles knew they had to devote themselves to this message, to informing people of it and to inviting people to it. And I don't want anyone to walk out of here today without being inviting to the same message. Tuesday of this week, I got to preach my grandma's funeral. Sweet privilege. She loved Jesus. And grandma told me one thing. Now, you make sure you bring the gospel message. Aye, aye, grandma. She was 87. But I just want to ask a question. What are you waiting for? Because you're not guaranteed 87 years. What are you waiting for? Well, I'm waiting to get some things cleaned up because I'm re- if I'm really going to do this church in Jesus thing, like I'm not really looking like a church in Jesus person. Ain't none of us looking like a church in Jesus person. L- listen, the guy next to you who tries to act like he, do- he doesn't, okay? It is humanly impossible for us to clean up our lives and then come to Jesus. We come, he cleans. What are you waiting for? Well, I'm, I'm waiting, college, high school students, listen to me right now. This was me. I didn't say it, but in my heart, this was, I'm waiting so I can enjoy and have the fun of the high school, college years. You know, I'm going to have the fun. We're going to have fun and we're going to do our stuff. It's going to be fun. And then I'm probably going to get married one day and I'm going to have kids and I'll do that church stuff. But yeah. It was 19 years old when Jesus Christ saved me and I've never had more fun since that day. All of the fun before then are just years I would give anything to go through actually having known Jesus and had the real fun that's found only in Christ. What are you waiting for? Today is the day. Today is the day. He loves you. He longs to know you. He wants you to know him and not just know about him. So church family, would you just stand on your feet right here in this place? Why I pray that we get the message of what I think is the most administratively crucial leadership decision of this time is because here's the prayer for this church. If 50 years from now Jesus still hasn't come back, you know what the prayer is? That this place will still be committed to doing all the ministry God has called it to do from the foundation of a commitment to, the prayer, to prayer and the word. It's becoming increasingly unpopular to do so. Imagine how unpopular it'll be for our kids and for our kids' kids. What differentiates the way we serve the world is that we serve the world out of the overflow of the message of the gospel and we carry it with us where we go. 
And if you're here today and you've never submitted your life to the message of this gospel and you don't know this Jesus as your Savior right now, you, from that seat right there, you call. You call on him. I'm not giving you a a rote prayer to repeat because those who the Spirit of God has worked on your heart and are ready to call, listen, you'll just call. And you'll say, I need, come on, Lord, I need you. And I don't even know what to say right now, but all I know is I need to submit my life to you. Do what are you waiting for? Do not walk out of here without that. And so, Father, I pray right now for this place. God, we want to be a place that's committed to all of the mercy ministry, all of the justice ministry, all of the tangible, action-oriented love of the gospel possible. But Lord, we don't ever want to get off of your plan of a firm and simple commitment to the power that infuses it all of prayer in your word. God, help us to not deviate from that. And God, I pray right now for the souls in here who, Lord, they don't even know what's going on inside of them right now. They just feel like they got an anvil sitting on their chest. I pray, Lord, they'd submit to that gospel message once and for all. You as Lord, them climbing off the throne of their heart and seeing you firmly on it from this day forward. God, work that in the heart right now of anyone you're calling. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.